Okay, one quick announcement. We're going to have Friday night at the movies this month. There's conflicting schedules, and some of us are just tired. <laughs> Isn't that right? And besides, I have a movie that I don't know if I'm going to get in in time anyway. So we talk, talked about maybe rescheduling it, but uh, that didn't work out. So no Friday night the movie this month, but it will be next month for sure. We'll appreciate all the more because we'll miss one. Okay, um, I think that's all the announcements. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. An option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your protection and provision. So glad, we're so happy to know that we can always depend upon you. Whatever the crisis, whatever the disaster, whatever it is in our life that sends to, uh, tends to have us looking elsewhere, we always need to look at you first. And we thank you for providing your word everything that we need in order to assimilate it. We pray that you will help us to concentrate this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This last Berean call is one of the better ones that I've seen. I read a little bit of it to you last Thursday. Maybe you have remembered about, uh, had to do with uh, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is a, is a, very talented man. He has a lot to say about the uh, ills that we face in a secular way, but he's also drifting more and more into the spiritual realm. He is, it appears, to be an unbeliever. If he adheres to the tenets of the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, then he certainly is an unbeliever. And I guess what I want you to remember more than anything is that we need discernment. We need to take someone that has a lot of good things to say and we can learn from him and be able to distinguish what is true and that which is not true, especially when it comes to the spiritual realm. And we're going to see something else if we continue in this Berean call. I'm just re reading a few lines here or there. And one of the things that I'm going to look at tonight it comes from the question and answer part of the Berean call. By the way, the Berean call is a, I guess you could say it's a news magazine. It comes once a month. It's free. You can also get it online by just going to thebereancall.com. B-E-R-E-A-N. That might be .org. I'm not sure. Anyway, this whole, throughout this whole magazine this time, in the question and answer section, in the regular uh, part that begins the magazine, and even in an extra, it, it has to do with what we're studying. And what are we studying? We're studying Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're dealing about 
uh, dealing with issues concerning the day of the Lord, the rapture, when, when are these things going to happen. There's a lot of details that we are learning, and we are not the only ones that are thinking about this or talking about it because we see this in this news magazine that goes out, I'm sure, to hundreds of thousands of people. Anyway, this is the first in this question and answer. The question isn't even relevant, but the answer is that is given. And I'm quoting now two short paragraphs. Glenn Beck is, is a prime example. His popularity among conservatives and Christians has spawned a growing spiritual convergence of Catholics, Mormons, and evangelicals and political conservatives who are joining hands to peel back the encroaching tyranny of socialism through political activism and unity of faith. That last part is what I want you to zero in on, that unity of faith. Can you all hear me, by the way? Is this... Okay, usually I can hear myself. I can't hear the deal, but that's fine. The unity of faith, and we all would sign on to unity of faith, Certainly, I would hope that Country Bible Church and its members have a unity of faith. It's not a bad thing, but it can be in, in a different context. When you're talking about ecumenism, which is let's just drop down our guard with regards to doctrine. Doctrine really isn't important. What's important is that we all get along and that we all are unified. After all, we're all looking to please God, that type of thing. And that's why I say this is, that's the red flag right there that this movement or the popularity has spawned a growing spiritual convergence of Catholics, Mormons, and evangelicals and political conservatives. And I'm saying that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Especially when so-called evangelicals, this would be believers who understand that you have to be born again in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. These are the evangelicals are the ones who you would think understand grace. And when they start uniting and converging with Catholics and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and shamans and Muslims and Hindus and whoever else that comes along, then that is a sign that there is trouble. Then he continues uh, this, uh, to answer these questions. He says, Although few may be aware of what they are ultimately contributing to that would be in this united front as far as faith is concerned, this unity of faith, they may not be aware that they are ultimately contributing to... They don't, they don't know about that, but... They are nevertheless working towards the establishment of a humanistic new world order of peace and prosperity that will ultimately be ruled by a false messiah, antichrist, who will be seen initially as an angel of light. Their faith in him will be the final strong delusion that will even deceive many who profess to be Christians." Doesn't that go along with what we're studying? We're, lo we're looking at the Antichrist. I'm going to read a few other things here. And what I want you to see is we are edging ever so close to that time that the Bible says is the day of the Lord. 
And we're, this is where we're at. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And we know that three things has to happen before that day begins. But we are, people are talking about this. You just heard one thing that is coming together, this ecumenical movement that is setting the stage for what is going to happen when Antichrist is revealed. Of course, we won't be here, but the stage is being set. In the same answer to this question, it says, Christ's bride is instructed to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to reprove them. There's a scripture here of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, while it is alarming to see the satanic deception enticing Christians to join forces in an unequal, unequal yoke with Mormons and other, quote, people of faith, it is simultaneously very exciting to realize that God's word is proving itself true even before our very eyes. What the Bible said is going to take place is unfolding before our, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And then <clears throat> in another portion of this, this is in letters to the, to the editor. It says, Dear T.A. McMahon and Dave Hunt and staff, thank you for your most informative January 2011 newsletter. The article, quote, The Temporal Delusion, Part 3, shows us definitely how the church is being diverted and the stage is being set for the finale. Need I say what that is? Stage is being set. The examples you cited on the YMCA and Salvation Army should be adequate to show how misguided the social ills-driven program is. Salvation Army didn't, you, you would, the people who founded it wouldn't recognize it today. It had to do with literal salvation, eternal salvation. Now it's meeting social ills, and that's what it's talking about. And here's the last one. The name of this, is, of, of this article is Winter Wonders, Signs of God or Sins of Man. That will whip your, whet your appetite a bit. It's talking about the widespread uh, nature and curious chronology of events that are causing many Christians and even some reporters to ask if these sudden mass die-offs of natural man-made, are they man-made or prophetic in, in, in nature? I don't know if you're aware of it, but this winter has set records around the world. And the, the climate is seen, seems to be going a little bit bonkers. In fact, before I left, I looked at Google Earth. This Someone sent an a email to me. And this happening right now between Japan and the United States is a storm the size of the United States, headed right now, at least, right for California. Pardon? I don't know if, what, with the wind. I don't think it would still too far off. It's about halfway between Japan and the United States. When I saw it, it was 2,500 miles wide. That's as wide as that's as big as the United States, and it's coming from Japan. So you might wonder what might be coming with it. 
in the form of radiation. And uh, I, I'm just throwing that down. Maybe it'll break up before it gets here, but you, I didn't, by the way, I didn't hear a thing about it on the news. But that's a big storm. When you, look at, you, when you looked at Katrina, you saw how powerful it was. It was about the size of the Gulf of Mexico. And the Gulf of Mexico is huge. I've had the opportunity recently to sail through it. And I didn't think we'd ever get out of it. So this storm is like from California all the way to Maine. And there has been, uh, it listed in this, are animal die-offs that they can't explain. They don't know what's doing it. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of birds, mammals, all kinds in different places all over the globe. Animals are dying in huge numbers and they don't know why. So that's what this article is about. Anyway, but this is where I'm going to get to. Again, it reads us right into our study. It says, There is no doubt that we live in increasingly perilous times and that birth pangs of the things to come, the things uh, soon to come, are being seen and felt in many ways. Now, I'm going to read that again. I want you to listen to it very carefully and don't mis mishear it, and I'll try not to misread it. There's no doubt that we live in increasingly perilous times and that birth pangs of the things soon to come are being seen and felt in many ways. He did not say that we are experiencing the birth pangs. Did you notice? He said that the birth things of things to come are being seen and felt in many ways. What I'm telling you and what I'm giving you all this is because we don't know what is behind tomorrow or today. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And there may be tremendous changes and sufferings and things that we never dreamed of could happen and there are going to be many who claim this. It, we're in the tribulation. There are people who are already claiming that. But if things continue that science cannot explain, look what happened in Japan. Now, that's a natural phenomenon. I understand that. But it's on a magnitude, magnitude that I don't remember in my lifetime seeing something like that. Now, Maybe some of you who are older may have seen that, but certainly, um, and there were, were reports that some of these storms, uh, the sun, I also heard this was today also. And I'm not looking for weirdo, wacko things. These are things that are coming across the Internet and in some cases the, the news, that the sun is doing some odd things also with uh, solar things, I don't remember what all they call it, solar flares and sunspots and all the rest. But anyway, they said they're getting so powerful that they could, that in, in, in league with storms could, could, could essentially knock out all the satellites we have. Now that, <laughs> that would cause the teenagers a meltdown. What are they going to do without their cell phone? I mean, they just might as well dig a hole and kick them in it and throw the dirt in because if they don't have their electrical apparatuses, the next sentence. But as even the limited evidence we've presented suggests, 
this winter's extreme weather, animal deaths, and even earthquakes are not the beginning of God's divine judgment which will occur after the rapture. He's got it right. This is, and then he gives a reference, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Rather, these events appear to be the consequences of entropy in conjunction with the wickedness of men devising an antichrist dominion over the earth, which itself is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, this was written by Mark Dinsmore. I just have a little, I want to tweak what he said that last sentence a little bit. I would have to say that I disagree with it a little bit. Where he says, I'll repeat it. He says, these events to be, uh, events appear to be the consequences of entropy. In other words, the world's wearing out. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. In conjunction with the wickedness of men devising an antichrist dominion over earth. And I'm saying it's not the wickedness of men that is devising an antichrist dominion over the earth. I don't think they can accomplish that. The one that is devising the dominion of antichrist over the earth is Satan himself. He's the one that's going to be empowering antichrist and Satan is going to be the genius that's going to pull all of this off but he cannot do that until, first of all, the departure happens when we go vertical. He can't do it until Antichrist is revealed. That will be the starting of the birth pains and so forth. And he can't do any of that until the restrainer, which I believe is the Holy Spirit, is removed. So who is holding all the cards? Who's got the trump card? Who is in control? God is. We can't ever forget that. And regardless of what may happen, I don't know, this storm might just phase out and never even make the, the news. But there could be one like that, that that occurs. People go in their merry way just like they did in Japan and for their lives will never be the same. And now I, I haven't heard because I, hadn't, I didn't watch the news tonight. I saw the uh, Internet. What's happening on the radiation deal? Is it pretty well status quo, the same? Is it getting worse or better? Getting worse, okay. If, uh, if those things explode, they're not going to stay in Japan. It looks like the, the winds bring it our direction. That's the way this storm is headed. Anyway, what I'm trying to tell you is, I'm telling you all this, that what you can do in physical ways would be wise to prepare for whatever may happen. Because there are things happening now that people can't explain. They don't know how. All these animal deaths, they don't know how it happened. The weather is, is not like it normally is. The earthquakes, the volcanoes, all these things are intensifying and there's more of them. But preparing physically isn't the main preparation. The main preparation is right here. Because if there, let's take for, for, for instance, if this storm was a giant of, of huge proportions and it hit California, California wind up looking like uh, Japan does now along its coast, what do you think it would do to this country? We don't, ha we don't have any idea what's going to happen. 
We don't want to be blasé about it and say, oh, well, that's just a bunch of conspiracy theories. Everything is going to continue just as it always has. Who were the ones that were saying that? The ones that, that did not believe the truth of the Bible and they did not believe the eschatology. They didn't believe the prophecies. And there are so many skewed ideas out there now with regards to prophecy and eschatology. We've studied some of them with regards to uh, replacement theology. There's a lot of people that think that we, the church, happen to be Israel. And when, when you start going down that avenue, the next thing you know, uh, we're going through the tribulation because the tribulation is for Israel. We're the, but it, it gets confusing, it gets convoluted because uh, those who think we're Israel, uh, we think that those people think in replacement theology for the most part think that, well, we're Israel and we get all the blessings, but we're just going to ignore all the cursing. They might just ignore that little, that little seven years that is on the agenda. Okay, let's get into our study. I just wanted to tell you, I thought it was important that I at least bring you information that I've been uh, accumulating through... Uh, doctrinally sounds new, newsletters like the Brian Collins. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse ten. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse ten. <coughs> Actually, it starts in verse 8. Let's start, let's read in our Bibles, verse 8 through verse 10. Because that's really one sentence, it's a long sentence. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with power, all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, we are going to pick up our study in verse 10. With all deception and wickedness of those who perish. We've already done the uh, signs and wonders and so forth. Um, we want to look at this uh, apolumi for perish here. Apolumi is a participle, present active. It means to destroy, to void, perish, or to bring to naught, to put to death physically. It also speaks of eternal death, which is called the second death in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. However, it does not carry the meaning of annihilation or of being a cause to cease to exist. Some people think that. So when it's talking about perish, in, in the English vernacular, when we hear the word perish, sometimes you think of it ceasing to exist. But that's not the meaning of this word. Uh, the second death, by the way, is for unbelievers only. 
is for those who have died physically. And instead of having eternal life, they're going to have eternal death, and it's called the second death. They will, that will be implemented at the great white throne judgment. People who don't know the Bible are suckers for signs, visions, and wonders. The Word of God is more reliable than what we see. Satan is a great deceiver who will easily deceive the world. So people, there's a lot of people that may not say it, but they say believing, uh, I mean seeing is believing. You've heard them say that before. Well, we, get, we, we see things all the time that we can uh, misconstrue. I remember when I took architectural drawing, mechanical drawing in school, uh, there was this one part that looked like, that was had to do with optical illusions, and you would bet the farm that something was a certain way, and it's not that way. If you were on the desert and you saw what appeared to be a lake shimmering on the horizon, well, what is that? It's your eyes deceiving you. It's not a lake. It's the heat waves making it look like water, and it's just a mirage. And with all deception of wickedness. Now, this is where we ended last time. And I had this, uh, if you have this in your notes, I want you to change this Greek word. I said it was apaste, and it's not. It's apate. A-P-A-T-E. It's a noun, dative singular feminine, and it means deceit or delusion. Deceptive. Many people believe that the devil, you know when I said it has red horns and red skin and a tail and has a trident. Do you, does, do you all know any adults that believe that? There are, they're out there. They think that's what the devil is. Of course, uh, this is contrary to Scripture. He's, he's uh, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 11, 14. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So what you see and hear, you can't take to the bank. You can't think that it's automatically true because someone is on TV and he has millions of listeners because he speaks dogmatically. He has a good vocabulary. He's well-educated. He has charisma. That means zilch. What he says is what you go by, and if it doesn't measure up with the Word of God, then you know that he is one of Satan's emissaries, not Christ. There's an old saying, those who do not stand for something will fall for anything. People who are not rooted and grounded in the Word of God will fall for all, the, for all of the signs. If you don't know doctrine, you're, you're, you're being set up to be deceived. I don't care how much intelligence you have. That's not the issue. If you have intelligence and you don't have wisdom, if you don't have truth in your soul, you still will be deceived. There's only one way to distinguish whether something is true or false, and that is to hold it up to the light of the Word of God. That's the only way. This is what never changes. This is our canon. This is our measuring rod. Everything has to be measured by the Word of God. And if you do that, and if you have the Word of God circulating in your stream of consciousness, then you're not going to be, a, be duped. You're not going to be deceived. 
But that's the only way to do it. I was talking to someone recently and I said, there is so much deception and confusion out there today that if you are not well grounded and have a, have a, a, a large inventory of doctrine in your soul, you're going to be confused also. You're going to be surprised and confounded, confused. John chapter 31, uh, John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, and that's a third class conditional clause, these are people who what? Believed in him. They were believers. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will set you free from all the deception and lies and duplicity that is out there. I read one commentary. I couldn't believe it. He says, if you are a true Christian, then you are a disciple. And that's not... That, this third class condition is written to believers. Maybe you'll be a disciple and maybe you won't. What is a disciple? A disciple is a person who disciplines themselves to learn and grow under the authority of someone. That's what a disciple is. All disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. In fact, few believers are disciples. But if you are a disciple, you will know the truth. And it's the truth that sets you free. The purpose of false teachers is to deceive the unsuspecting. That's what makes these false teachers and Satan's emissaries so dangerous is that they appear as ministers of light. And they're good at what they do. And they will deceive and our job is not to be deceived. And the only way we can, we can determine it is what they say is measured by this book. Outside of that, it's just anybody's guess. Your opinion is good as anybody's else. But when God speaks, that's the light that shines on anything so that you can tell whether it's true or whether it's false. Romans 3.13. This is describing the deceivers. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips. They say poisonous things. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. This is unpleasant. People make friends, and the next thing you know, there's a doctrinal issue and what is going to be sacrificed? The relationship or the doctrine? Most of the time, it's doctrine. That's that ecumenical. That's the unity of faith. Let's have harmony. And if you stand on doctrinal principles and you rebuke someone that is trying to teach false doctrine or embrace false doctrine and you don't separate from them or if you do separate from them, then you're going to be you're going to be accused of being unloving and that you are not, a, not really a true Christian because if you were a true Christian, you'd get along. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. That would be their emotional appetites. 
And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the, look at that, unsuspecting. Every time someone starts to, that I don't know, and they start talking to me something of a, about the Bible or something of a spiritual nature, my radar goes out. I'm, I'm on guard. You know when they do the sword, it's on guard? Now when I talk to you all, I don't do that. But when I'm talking to someone I don't know, and they say, hey, did you hear what that preacher said the other day? I'm just, I'm ready. Because nine times out of ten, it's going to be crapola. And I am not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Smooth and flattering, they deceive. You, in, other, in other words, what I'm saying is, you should be on guard and not be unsuspecting. Now, you don't want to go around and pick doctrinal fights with people. That's not it. But probably outside of your church family, most of the people that you know don't have it straight. Wouldn't you agree with that? Family included. Sometimes family especially. You have to be on, on guard. And you take... Here's... Watch these next verses. I think God is trying to give us a message here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. James 1.16, do not be deceived. Ephesians 5.6, let no one deceive you. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one in any way deceive you. 1 John 3.7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Matthew 24.4, take heed that no man deceive you. 2 Timothy 3.13 But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Look at that. Do you think the Bible, do you think God is trying to give us a message? Do not be deceived. Over and over and over again. That's the danger. Probably all of you know people who have, what we say, been in doctrine. They've learned, they, they have a, a, a great wealth of doctrine in their soul but they let their guard down. They're unsuspecting. They get arrogant. They get fat-headed. They think they know more than they do, and something sounds good to them, and they buy into it, and you say, how could that happen? Well, they were deceived. What is the antidote to deception? Truth, right, truth. And where is the truth? The truth is in this book right here. This truth reveals the living truth. This is the written word, which is truth, and it speaks of the living word, which is truth. It's really not, not that hard to understand. If you want to not be deceived, you have to know the book. You have to know doctrine. And there's none of us so clever or so intelligent or so smart that we can get away from this book for any length of time and not be deceived. There are professionals in deception. 
And when this Antichrist comes, he's not only going to be a professional, he is going to have the aid and be promoted and be empowered by probably the most powerful creature on earth or in the heavens, minus Christ, of course. So you can see, even then, though, even with all the various signs and wonders of different kinds of evil, all this will be taking place. Satan, with all his power and all of his signs and wonders that he's going to be able to do, cannot deceive a believer with doctrine in his soul. But he will be able to deceive anyone else. I'll go through those. I saw some of you want to write this down with regard, as far as not being deceived. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Galatians 6, 7, James 1, 16, Ephesians 5, 6. All of those have the same phrase in it, do not be deceived. And by the way, that's not a suggestion. Those are imperative moods. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, 1 John 3, 7, Matthew 24, 4, and 2 3, uh, Timothy 3, 13, and Titus 1, 10 all have the same message. Do not be deceived. And it's an order. Don't do it. That's what the danger is. The Antichrist will be different from every other deceiver because he will deceive the whole world. That's never been done. There's been people who, uh, look at how many people Hitler deceived. When he came on the scene, he looked like a messenger of light. He was going to, to rise up Germany out of the ashes of World War I. And he did some good things. But he, was, he had an agenda. He, was, he deceived the people. Revelation 12, 9, and Satan who de deceives the whole world. No man is able to do that on his own, but Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. He will deceive the world through his ancient, uh, uh, excuse me, agent, the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 18, 23, and all nations were, for us it would be, will be, deceived by your sorcery, Antichrist, empowered by Satan. Revelation 23. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. You know, this is when, when Christ returns. He's not going to share planet Earth with Satan. All unbelievers and Satan as well scram, you're off planet earth and in the great abyss for a thousand years. And what, he, what does it specifically say he can't do anymore? Deceive the nations anymore. What do you think he's going to do as soon as he gets out? <laughs> yeah. And he, this is talking about Satan, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. That's the first thing he does when he gets let out. Revelation 20:10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Right to the bitter end, he is deceiving people. You'd think if you had a thousand years, I don't know what the abyss is. It's called the pit. 
uh, bottomless pit. I don't know what it is, but if you have a thousand years to think about something and you, and, and you are running in your mind all the times that you deceived and all the things you've done and you wound up in a bottomless pit, you've already been sentenced to the lake of fire, you would think that maybe there might be a little contrition, a little change of mind, a little what we might say repentance. No. When you combine signs and wonders with deception and wickedness, you have something powerfully evil. Do you know that most people on this planet don't make decisions and they don't think rationally with regards to principles, not even biblical principles, even fewer than that use the Bible. And they are tossed like a a boat without a rudder in a, in, a, in a storm. Whatever they see, this looks, goes over here. Well, what about this? Let's, let's try a little meditation. Let's try a little yoga. Let's try a little meditative a prayer. Let's try uh, this. Let's try that. Can't hurt. They're deceived because the Bible tells us not to get into all that trash. Let's look at this Apollumi again for just a moment. Don't have much time left. Um, there's only three other verses in, in the Bible that has a present active plural dative masculine participle of Apollumi. Now, I know you won't remember that, but what I'm trying to tell you is this word Apollumi is used, I, don't, I didn't count them, but it's probably used 70 or 80 times in the New Testament. But it's only used three times with the morphology that it's used in our Scripture. In other words, there's only three places where Apollumi is used in, with the same morphology, which is a present active participle. Now, usually when I give you a participle, I just give you the verbal aspects of it, but a, a, a participle is kind of a hybrid. It's got... It's got noun nuances to it as well as verb nuances to it. And so I spare you the headache of looking at the whole morphology of it. But this word apolumi in our text in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 is a present active plural dative masculine participle. And there's only three other sentences, three other Verses in the whole Bible that has it used that way. And it's interesting. Look at these verses. One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who, what? Are perishing. This is the middle participle. Present middle participle. And, uh, uh, well, I said uh, this is uh, in the present this is a present active, this is a present middle, but I'm talking about the morphology of being in the present tense. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are what? Are being saved. That's a present passive participle. It is the power of God. Do you know what the middle voice is? 
the the middle voice we have it right here in the uh where is it in the uh next verse here thought we had it there it's it's the middle voice is when you do something that reflects on yourself you reap the consequences of something that you did it's they call that reflexive so the word of the cross what is that talking about the gospel is to those who are in the process of perishing. They have negative volition and they are reaping the consequences, that's the, the middle voice, of their decision. But, contrast, to those who are being saved, that's a, what, look at this, this is in the passive voice. We receive this deliverance who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us believers. Turn to this one. This is, this is important for you to, to get because actually when we're talking about those who are perishing, see, you don't get the full flavor of this when it says for those who, are peri for those who perish, because it doesn't say, it sounds more like an aorist in the English. But if it said, for those who are perishing, see, participles normally have an ing. That would give more the nuance of, an, of something that is ongoing, something that's happening. Second Thessalonians, I mean, excuse me, Second Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us believers in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of knowledge of him. The sweet aroma, by the way, is knowledge of doctrine in every place. Now what he's setting up here, it doesn't, doesn't mean that much to us, but you have to have the isagogus of this verse to really appreciate it. In ancient times, when there was a victory, when a general had a great victory over the enemy, they would go, he, he would come back to, his, to the city, and they would have a parade. And it was called a triumphal procession. And he had the slaves that would, had the, the captives that they, that they had conquered, would be part of that entourage, it would be part of that parade. And they would uh, throw, literally, they would throw flowers and they would throw perfume and incense out on those who had conquered as they came through the, the procession as a parade. And so when he says that, uh, that, thanks be to God who always leads us believers in his, in his triumph in Christ, tri Christ is the triumphant one, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of knowledge of him. The sweet, the sweet aroma is knowledge in doctrine, but we're going to see that it has to do specifically with the gospel in this case. In every place. Verse 15, For we, these are believers who give the gospel, are fragrance of, of Christ to God among those who are, look, being saved. That's a participle. And that's those who accept the gospel and among those who are perishing, those who reject the gospel. In other words, the gospel, just like they took the, 
the perfume and the uh, uh, and the incense, and they would throw it out on those who are in flowers who were in the parade. Both those who are victors and those who were slaves alike got this fragrance on them. And what we're going to see to those who were victors, that fragrance was a, an aroma of life. But to those who were slaves, that same aroma was the aroma of death. And what, the, what we're going to see is specifically the aroma would be the gospel. The gospel goes out to all people, those who are believers and those who aren't believers. And it's contrasting this. Look at verse, um, let me go through verse 15 again. For we that would be believers who give the gospel are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. It's a sweet savor. It's, 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 for those who accept the gospel, that doctrine of salvation, eternal security and so forth, is a sweet aroma to them. And among those who are perishing, this, this, those who give out the fragrance, the gospel, are a, free, a, a, a nice aroma to God, whether it falls on those who accept it and are being saved or those who reject the gospel and are perishing. Look at verse 16. To the one, now make sure you get this in your Bible, to the one would be the unbeliever an aroma from death to death. And that's the aroma from spiritual death, born spiritually dead, to death, eternal death. That's the second death. So the gospel, that aroma that is so great to us, to the unbeliever, is the aroma of death. And it takes them from spiritual death at birth all the way to the second death because they can constantly reject the gospel. But to the other, to the one, an aroma of death, to death, that would be spiritual death to eternal death for the un unbeliever. But to the other, which would be a believer, it's an aroma from life, spiritual life when you're born again, again to eternal life when you're actually in your resurrection body. And all that has to do with those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those who are perishing are unbelievers who will experience the second death. And the perishing is not annihilation, as the Jehovah Witnesses would allege, and those of worldwide church of God, they say, if you're an unbeliever and you never believe in Christ, then you just cease to exist. Not so. The triumph in Christ relates to the triumphal procession, procession in ancient times where the victors of battle would parade down the streets and receive praise and glory. We went over that. The next point here, it is one thing to have victory, but it is quite another thing to smell or to know victory. If you're a believer, you have victory in Christ because He has given us the victory over death. Remember that? We have the victory. And a lot, of, a lot of believers don't know that they have the victory. They are victorious because they're in Christ, but they don't know that they're victorious. They don't have that sweet savor, that sweet aroma of victory. So in order to have that sweet smell of victory, you have to know 
that you're victorious. Are we victorious? Are we in Christ? Is Christ victorious? And when you have that and you carry it around with you, it's just like a this sweet aroma. And you go through the drudgery and the crud that you have to sludge through on this earth. And yet you can always smell that sweet savor that this is now, but I've already got the victory. I can already smell it. How can you smell it? By knowing what's in the Word. Believers are in the process of being delivered and unbelievers are in the process of being vanquished. They're in the process of being ruined and we're in the process of being delivered. Now, I've, I've given this more of a positional sense, but it also holds true for an experiential sense also. In other words, we are being delivered, if you are a believer, that is positive towards God's Word, you're going to have that sweet savor, that, sweat, that smell of victory because you know Jesus Christ is the victor. He's in charge. And that's a great, a great uh, knowledge to have. But not all believers have that, do they? Some of them are in Christ and they have victory over death because Christ has given it to them. They're going to have a resurrection body, but they spend nights in sweat, worried about going to hell. That's somebody that has the victory and don't know it. They don't have the sweet smell. Well, maybe I shouldn't have had that hard a verse at the last few minutes. But it does give you the idea of those who are being delivered and those who are being vanquished. They're in that process. And they're not going to be annihilated. They're going to be, they, they will experience eternal death, the second death, in darkness, away from God. We'll continue this next time. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that we have victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for your promises that you deliver us not only from the lake of fire, but also from the wrath to come based on who and what you are and your matchless plan. So we pray that you will help us to continue to smell that sweet savor of victory, that sweet perfume of your promises, that we will know that we have the victory even though we go through things on earth that are unpleasant. It's just temporary. Soon enough, we'll see you face to face. And indeed, we'll give you praise and glory for who and what you are and what you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.